Good morning, one and all. We greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior. We're glad for those of you who are here and for any who will join us at some point online. We're glad that you're going to be with us at some point. Uh, our notes are available online. Again, the series we're doing right now is it's under the title of the First Century Church in our, in our, uh, on our website. If you go to view our doc, documents, you can find under my name, Don Hewitt. If you go in there, you'll find the notes on the, the First Century Church, and it's where we're at today. And I try to keep things updated. And, there's, of course, there's other things on there, too, for myself and others. There's a lot of good information available on our church website. Let's go ahead and open in just a word of prayer, and then we're going to get started again. Our Father, once again, we're so thankful that you've given us so many privileges. And one of them is to study your word, and, one, and it's to understand your word as it's written, Father. It's not to give it our opinion. It's not to, for us to decide what it means. But rather, Father, the, the genius of Bible study is simply to let your word say what it says and for us to pay attention to it in context. And then once we've understood the context of who it's written to and why it was written, then we can begin to probe through the details and to see the things that are relevant to us. Father, may we always keep in mind the privilege that we have to study this book and the fact that we should not be trying to say what it means. We should allow it to be saying what it says and then we will understand it better. May this time be beneficial now, we ask, and may the service that follows as well be a blessing. We'd ask in our Savior's wonderful name. Amen. Okay, we are in a series. Uh, it's been a long, it's an ongoing series that we have uh, called Problems We Don't Have When We Take Scripture Literally. And the biggest problem in most Christian circles today, most Christian churches, is the failure to take the Bible literally. If we don't interpret the Bible literally, then we are deciding what it means. We are saying, this is what I think it means. If God says, I have done this for Israel, then it means God did that for Israel. If that means it's for the church, then it's for us. And why is it so hard for us to take the Bible literally? My, my favorite example of, of, of what it's like is just imagine if you went down to the, to the store, the bookstore, and you bought the latest latest book by one of your favorite authors and it's a spy novel and so this this gentleman simon is a spy and he goes into russia to find some secrets you say well no 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 that's not what it means it's about sarah she's a reporter for the daily tribune in, in, in oklahoma now would you do that to a book like that but that's how people handle the bible is they say well no it's not for israel it's for the church i've i've shared this with, with gentlemen in seminary before one of the most striking things that shows you the problems that come is uh, in one of the commentaries of a what they call a Puritan divine, which is a title that people use for these men of the past that they look up to and revere. In Jeremiah 31, 31, it says, A new covenant I make with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, I'm simple-minded enough to say if God says it's for the house of Israel and the house of Judah, it's for them, right? But in this commentary, there's one line by this one man this is a new covenant for the church. Now, if words mean anything, doesn't it mean? Uh, I could go on all day about something like that, but you see the point. So this study is, is designed to pick various subjects and, and places where we see problems when people don't take the Bible literally. And there's so many misunderstandings that come down the pike, and one of them is about the first century church. Now, when we introduced this some time back, we pointed out that 
the normal tendency would be, since this church was so close to the beginning and had the apostles and it were getting the scripture written and there was all the excitement as the church spread, and it spread like wildfire in, in its first few years. There's a tendency to think that everything was all uh, roses and, and uh, sunshine. And that the church at the end of the first century was a super church. It was, it was so much greater. But when we go back and look at what Scripture says, we find out that that's not exactly what happened at all. In fact, it was a far different picture from that. And that's what we're looking at. Now, there's, there's three parts to this, this series on the first century church. And they're all dealing with the writings of John because the apostle John was the apostle that lived right up very close to 100 A.D. And so he would have been there at the very end of the first century, and he would be able to tell us what the first century church was like. Now, he's not, he didn't sit down and write a book. It says the history of the first century church. But we see in his writings observations about the church of that time that he was seeing, and that was what was happening in the first century church. So we're going to look at his writings first. We've, we're going through, and we're going to finish up pretty soon, the analysis and revelation of what the first century church was like. Then we're going to look at 1 John, which was written not too long before Revelation and would also reflect the first century church. And then we're going to go looking at another place that perhaps we wouldn't have thought to look, and that's at the Gospel of John, because the Gospel of John is going to reveal some things that the early church needed to be reminded of. And it's very, it's very, it goes to show us that really, I think, in the final say of things, when we get done with this, you'll see that the first century church was probably not different from a lot of what goes on today in the name of Christ. And it's not as good as what is going on here, I don't think. They weren't as, dis, they weren't as literal with Scripture. They didn't have some of the things right. So they had a lot of problems. And that's what we're going to see in this. Now, we left off on page, on the top of page five, and we were talking about when Christ spoke to the, the messenger of the church. Now, remember in, in Revelation chapter 1, and let's go back to Revelation 2, because that's where, we're, that's where we're looking at today. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus is speaking to the messenger of the church. Now, it's translated angel, but that's a transliteration of the word, and that's what they've done. And they do that, uh, the King James does that a number of times, Sometimes I think it's because they don't know what else to do with the word. They don't know what it means, so they just transliterate it. And sometimes it's because they may not like the meaning of the word. Like baptizo comes across as baptize. Well, the Anglicans did not believe in baptism by immersion. And the word baptize, the Greek word baptizo, would tell them that's what it means. So they transliterated it. And then they said, well, it means baptize. Well, that can be sprinkle, pour, immerse, or whatever. Well, that's a way of getting around it. And in this case, in Revelation 1 and 2, where he's, and 2 and 3, really, where he's talking about the angel of the church, angel the messenger of the church. Now, I know Pastor Kevin is, is, a, is a great guy, and I really respect him as a friend and as a teacher and a preacher. He's, he's one of the finest I've ever heard in my life. And I've heard some pretty good men, too. But I don't think he's an angel. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think he's an angel in the true sense of the word. Now, we might call him bishop, uh, Miss J, Miss J and I would call him bishop just because, uh, but the word a messenger, he's the messenger of the church. There's not a spirit being that stands behind the pulpit and speaks. So this is not to be taken when it says the angel of the church. We should understand that as being the messenger of the church. And the one that's the messenger or the representative of the church is going to be the pastor. We know that from what's the description of the pastor in, in 1 Peter chapter 5 and other places, especially 1 Peter 5. So this is written, these things are written to the pastor, 
And it shows us why the pastor's role is such an important role, because he is supposed to set the example spiritually for the church. And so the problems and the good things that are said here were true of the pastor of his church, of Ephesus. And so this church represented the church at the end of the first century. And it was a remarkable church in many ways, because you'll notice that in verse 2 of of, uh, Revelation 2, we looked at the things that are there, where Jesus said to this pastor, I know your works. You'll notice in the King James, your, thy, it's second person singular. And that's one thing I like about the King James at this point, is that you can see where it's a second person singular versus plural. In modern English, we'd say, I know your works. Well, it could be the whole church. But by saying, I know thy works, we can see it's just one man's works that he's looking at. The pastor, I know your works, thy works, thy labor, thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them that are evil. And thou hast tried them as say they are apostles and are not and found them liars and hast and has borne and has had patience and for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. Now, there's a lot there that's said that is good. This man was so good. Now I would have thought and I would be prone to think that when you had so much good said about a man like that, that there wouldn't be much bad to say about him, and you'd minimize it because he did so much good. But that's not what happens here. Because, and one last thing that we have to go over is uh, he does, he's done that, and after his rebuke, his reprimand, then he does come back, Jesus does come back and add one more thing, which is interesting that it's added after his rebuke. We're going to look at it before the rebuke, but it says in verse 6, But this you have, this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, I didn't put it in your notes, and I, I probably should have. That word for hate, Jesus said he hates, and the pastor hates. Now, is, is that a bad thing? Because the word hate can be used as a work of the flesh. But if you check, if you use e-sword, you can check and see that this is an entirely different word than the word that is used in the works of the flesh, where there's wrath. This is not the same as that. This is not a work of the flesh. This is simply a mental attitude of detesting something, of despising it. You can see it, for example, back in the book of Jude, just back a page or two, where it talks about, uh, let's see, verse 23 of the the little epistle of Jude, it talks about, Verse 22, he said, If some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling him out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. You hate the garment spotted, you despise it. If we look at the works of the flesh, I think most of us would have to say together, Ugh, that's disgusting. I, I despise, I hate it, I despise it. Well, that's what it means. It doesn't mean I'm going to do something. It's not a negative thing. In fact, in Jude 23, it's a good thing. You despise it. I don't want anything to do with what I was. I, this, this idea today that, that, that I'm saved and, and I can still be like I was. You know, God doesn't make any, as that saying that says, God don't make no junk, which is terrible grammar. I hate it because I, I despise it. I hate it because of the grammar, but also because of the idea, because it says in 1 Corinthians 6, such were some of you. I was a terrible person. Hopefully, I'm not that same person today that I was 50-some years ago when I first got saved. So, this word for hate that is used in in, uh, Revelation 6, and I didn't put it in your notes, but it's just simply a word that means that you despise something, you find it disgusting, contemptible, you just don't want it. You don't want to be around it, you don't want anything to do with it. And that's, that's a good thing. And so, this pastor 
despised, he didn't want anything to do with the Nicolaitans. Now, we're on page five in our notes, and so I put under point D, the pastor, this is one of the commendations of the pastor, he's commended for rejecting the latest trend in church government. Now, I say the latest trend because this is not the church government that was laid down by the Apostle Paul. The church government the Apostle Paul laid down was congregational. There's a difference, and, and people don't understand that there's a sphere of authority that goes to the pastor. But that's in spiritual things. He used to take the oversight according to 1 Peter 5. But that doesn't mean in running the church. Running the church, we have some capable men. We have Scott and we have Brother Carl. And these men have done a yeoman's job in doing so many things for the church and in finding this building and finding a facility, working out all the details. They ran things. Pastor Kevin wasn't involved in any of that any more than I was or that most, most everybody else was. These men did the work. It's the church that does all the work. The pastor's sphere of authority doesn't go over the line of spiritual things into running the church. And some people have a problem thinking that. Now, that's the latest trend now, but it was then. But now the, the name itself tells you what Nicolaitanism was. The Nicolaitan false teaching, the word itself, and it, this is kind of, kind of a fun thing, it comes out of two words out of Greek, Nico which means victory, and laos, people. It's victory over the people. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, if you have victory, you're victor, you're in charge. You, you've got your foot on the neck of the people. You're telling them what to do. You have, in other words, it is what we would call the division of the clergy and laity. Now, many churches today have a clergy-laity division. The clergy is elevated above the common people, and he's put up on a pedestal. Now, in some ways, I like that idea of putting the pastor on a pedestal, only in so much as the pedestal ends when he's done preaching and he gets off his pedestal and comes down and he's just like everybody else. But you see, the cler this clergy-lady division, they made a distinction that, that existed, and from that, they began to build on top of that. You have all this superstructure. Now you have uh, denominations, uh, for example, the Methodist Church, that I'm vaguely familiar with because my grandmother was part of it, um, the pastor of their church, I, we, we visited one time, there was some celebration for her in honor of 50 years of being at the church or something like that. And the pastor said that he was going to be glad he had good news, he was going to be able to stay because the bishop, the archbishop of the area, granted him the permission to stay at the church. Now, is that the way the New Testament was organized? It's the people, you know, admittedly, Paul told Titus to ordain elders, but the people raised their hands and approved of those elders. And there's nothing that indicates that it was ever done any other way. But now, Nicolaitanism puts the places the pastor above the people and creates an order above the pastor outside the church. Now, I gave you a footnote down here, and if you look at, if you take the time later, you go to that website down on the bottom of the page, this footnote under footnote 11, and those footnotes are there for you to use later. You can see the order, and it explains how this, a lot of how this worked out. And it's come, it came to the point where you had the church at Rome decide that it had the ultimate authority. He was the top of the, the hierarchy. There were archbishops and everything else, but then there was the pope who was above all these other, the College of Cardinals and all this, and I don't understand some of it. Don't want to understand it. It's not in the Bible. Now, ultimately... These non-biblical offices came to control the doctrine of a group of churches, which later became denominations, and even determined who was the pastor of a local church. Now, that's still true today. I saw it happen. I was right there when this pastor said, oh, 
the, the, the archbishop, you know, the, the council, whatever, I was archbishop of the council, has decided I could stay another year. The pastor got to stay a year. Was he going to be there the year after that? I, I, I don't think I'd like to, I don't, I don't know, I don't know if I'd like to be played like a yo-yo. I could be here, and they might decide I'm going to go to Kansas next year. Then I might be in Arkansas. Then I might be in, who knows? I, I don't like that idea. But you'll notice I put down here, this clearly violates the biblical doctrine of congregational church government. Now, you, you've seen that here. Those of, those of us that have been here for any time at all, we've seen that there are things that go on in the church that the pastor doesn't decide. Uh, the church decided this, the budget pastor didn't dictate the budget the church decided his his housing allowance uh the church decided all that and, and pastor kevin didn't dictate any of that and all that goes on and and the church years ago miss J was here when it happened they called kevin to be the pastor nobody sent him here and said he's going to be your pastor the church called him to be the pastor now how would you like it if we were part of a group and said no no kevin's he's moving on he's he's going to duluth minnesota and this guy that you've never met from 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 Phoenix, Arizona, is coming here to be your pastor. You didn't call him. You don't mean I don't even like him, but he's coming here to be. Is that the right thing to do? I don't think so. And so the, the roots were planted in, in Apostle John's time, but the, the church uh, hierarchy of Nicolaitanism took root in the second century, and almost, it seemed like almost as soon as the Apostle John was gone. Now, I couldn't, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't document it. I couldn't find the documentation on it. But I remember reading it, and so you have to take this as opinion. I can't show you where it was, but one of John, Apostle John's disciples, and, and these apostles, they didn't have seminaries, so they, they, they discipled teachers. And Polycarp studied under John. And according to what I read in church history, Polycarp held this position. He held Nicolaitanism, even though the Apostle John did not. And so one of his disciples, as soon as John was gone, he was no more, he was, his grave was probably still warm, and Nicolaitanism was already infiltrating the church in the second century. Now, why is that such a terrible thing? Well, you'll notice I have down here, there's two problems, and there's probably more, but there's two problems that can, by Nicolaitanism you uses to cripple the local church. Effectively, the first one is effectively, it destroys spiritual gifts within the church. Because as this Nicolaitanism grew, the church hierarchy determined the doctrine for all the churches. In a denomination, there's an official church doctrine that is passed down. The local church does not get to make that decision. And you notice I put in brackets, that is still true today. Because they had big meetings of different churches. And, for example, uh, I forget which group it was a few years back, they got together and decided that, that homosexuals could be ordained. Now, all the churches in that denomination probably would not have agreed with that. I hope they all didn't. But because that was the official doctrine, that would be the doctrine the pastor would be supposed to teach within the local church. Now, if the pastor is supposed to be preaching, is he not supposed to be led by the Holy Spirit as to what he's going to preach? Well, it takes away the fact that the pastor has a spiritual gift. It minimizes that because he's got to teach the church doctrine. He may not always agree with it, a good example, a big example of that is, is tithing. Virtually every Christian denomination that says anything about giving will go to tithing. I don't know of anybody that doesn't believe in tithing as a denomination. Now, of course, there's a lot of individual churches that know better that are willing to take the Bible literally and see that tithing was given back here to support the priesthood. You gave 10%. Why? Because the priests lived off of that. 
well, does a pastor have to get 10% to live off? Well, it would be nice if he did, but that's not commanded. And some people can give a lot more than 10% anyway, and some people do. But you see, the Nicolaitanism, as it grew, you'll notice point number two in there, the calling of, they took the calling of the pastor from the church and it gave it to an outside group. And that's still true today. There are denominations today where the pastor doesn't decide where to go. He may stay there a year and they may send him someplace else. So you'd, you'd have to have a moving van. You'd have to have a U-Haul parked out in front, of your, in front of the parsonage if you had a parsonage. And I would think you'd have to leave your stuff packed because you might not be there more than a year. Boy, I don't know if I'd like that. I, I, last time we moved, I swore it'd be the last time. And then we moved again since then. We moved one last time, and I'm, I, keep, I keep cutting a, solid, a solemn covenant with my wife that we're not going to move again. But then you never know about that. But just imagine these men having to jump all over the place. And that's what the, that can't happen today. So you have the denomination that came, that came out of this controlling what the church believes. And you get a few lousy guys up at the top that are not believers. You get a few of these archbishops that don't, are not dispensational, that are not, they're not even Christian. They're tares. Then what happens to the doctrine the church holds? It's diluted and the church begins to stand for something that the New Testament doesn't teach. And is it any wonder that there's churches out there that have nothing to say of any value? We're all aware of the fact there are churches like that. Now, whether or not, this is point number three under, under this, this destroying spiritual gifts, whether it's recognized or not, Nicolaitanism, or the hierarchical church government, replaces dependence on God for, for doctrine and the calling of the pastor with, uh, and many other, with, with dependence, many other matters with dependence upon a group of fallible men. So now, just imagine for a moment, if within the church, a person that has a spiritual gift of exhortation. Now, I'm, I'm hoping you're all familiar with the gift of exhortation. It is the individual within the church, man or woman, that has the ability to say, this is what we should be doing. The pastor just talked about loving one another. Now, let's really get at it. This is how we can do it. We should be doing this. It's somebody that can encourage others to, to move without offending them. I've known people that have tried to be, quote-unquote, exhorters that are trying to push people, and you get annoyed with them. You want them to tell them, shut down and shut up. But someone with a really with the gift of exhortation can move people to act, and they will do it. But now, what happens if that if that person has the gift of exhortation and is in a church that's run by this Nicolaitan system, and the church doctrine coming down says, well, now you can't distinguish, you, you can't you can't discriminate against the, the homosexual, the LBD, LBGTQRST, WHYXP, exponent, and all those other all those people, the alphabet people, as they call them. And so here's a person with a gift of exhortation, and the pastor is forced to say something, and he has a sermon that says we should be loving of these people and so forth. With the gift of exhortation, you're going to want to get up and encourage people to do that when you know it's wrong. You see what it's done to the gift of exhortation? That's just one spiritual gift in the church. It's not only ruined the pastor's gift, because if the pastor doesn't believe that, if he comes on that subject, he's obligated to say what the denomination says, or he can get reported back to them, and they can come after him. So he's supposed to say that, and then you have a gift of exhortation. You're going to get up and try to exhort on some heretical nonsense. It's going to ruin the use of spiritual gifts. Now, it also, point number B on the bottom of page 5, it also removes the accountability and responsibility from the local church. If the hierarchy makes all the important decisions, the local assembly has no authority, no responsibility, no accountability for doctrinal errors. Now, how does that sound, folks? 
In other words, you could sit back and say, ah, it's his fault, it's her fault. Kind of reminds me of what Adam said to God. The woman you gave to be with me, she did it, you know. Isn't it nice? It's always, and I, you can see, I can see why sometimes churches like the idea of elder rule, which is very, it's, elder rule is the beginning of Nicolaitanism. That's why I'm against elder rule, having people, having men elected that they govern the church with an iron fist. Well, that makes the people back there, they can say, well, I don't have any responsibility. I don't have to do it. And it really, it encourages them to sit back and do nothing, including using their spiritual gift. You see the danger of this? If we, if we allow others to tell us what we as a church ought to be doing outside of this group, then we're replacing our dependence upon God and directing his people with dependence on a group of men who are outside this church, who don't even know the people that are here. They don't know what our spiritual needs are. The spiritual needs of this church are probably different from, the, from another church down the street. Even if that church is equally, if they're teaching the same as we were, they would still have different needs than we do because there's different people there. Different people, different needs. There's no flexibility within a system like this. Nicolaitanism tends to try and make everything uniform. Now, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not preaching against any particular group of churches. I'm not against any churches. I don't have any vendetta against anything. But what I am saying is I do have a problem with those who want to take the responsibility of the local church and give it to a group of individuals who are not part of that church, who don't have any vested interest in the church, and they're the ones that are going to tell the church what to do and who their pastor should be. i got a real problem with that, folks. i got a real problem with that because it's just going to quash everything in the church. Now, what about the reprimand of the pastor? And, and I, I trust, I hope I didn't defend anybody because I'm not against any group. I am not against... Any group that has uh, a hierarchy over it, they may be, there may be people within those churches that work around some of these things and know how to skillfully dodge and avoid those subjects and how to teach things that are correct, and the people may be doing everything. I don't know. So I'm not against any group of churches, but I'm against the type of doctrine that would take all of the dependence upon God by this church and place it in the hands of some men who don't know anything about what's going on here. And in some cases, I really honestly believe that in the hierarchy of, of some of those denominations, there are men that are not even saved in the first place. Because there are men in the pulpits that aren't saved in churches. It, it does happen. It does happen. It does in the churches. If you go through the churches in the book of Revelation, at least the pastor of the last church of Laodicea is definitely not a saved man. If you read his description, he's not saved. But he's a pastor. But he isn't saved. So, now, what about the reprimand? Now, as I said, this, this man had so many things going for him. He had so many things that he was commended for. You think, well, this, I would, you tend to minimize. I mean, a guy that's doing everything right. He has a discernment to, to find out who are the false apostles that were running around. He tried them, and that's, that word is the word we use for temptation. It means you put something to the test thoroughly. You thoroughly tested. He had enough knowledge and understanding to go through things and could find the, the errors of these false apostles and he would have nothing to do with them. He wouldn't put up with them. All of that sounds so good. Why would there be anything wrong with this man? Why would you say anything? It's because it's going to be an error at the most foundational thing for the church. He's going to be wrong there. And you see that in what's said. Now you'll notice it says in verse 4, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. Now you'll notice that italicize somewhat Somewhat does not belong in the text. Now, you might think that's, that's petty because it's put in by the translators to help you understand. Well, it does, it does that quite often. Oftentimes, italicized words are quite helpful. 
sometimes they are not helpful at all. And this is one of the times when it is not only not helpful, it runs counter to what's being said. Because literally, what it says, but I have against you, it's a much stronger statement. I have against you something. Now, if you say I have somewhat against you, it makes it sound like it's a small matter, doesn't it? You see the difference between I have somewhat against you, and I have, but I have this against you. That's way stronger, and it should be because what he's going to say is the foundation of the church was at stake here. So, you have left is not a good translation of, of uh, Revelation 2 for us. You have sent away. I don't know if there, there should be some notes back there still. Uh, check and see if you have notes back there for, yeah, for the class. We're on page 6 in uh, the first century church notes. Now, it's thou hast left makes it sound like it's an, it's a, it could be an, action, an incidental thing. You have left. Well, it might be that you did it unawares that you did it. You might have just kind of wandered away and forgotten about something. It, it could be an innocent actor that the pastor just forgot to, to, to uh, preach on something. But that's not what the word is, that, that's left is, is, means. It's not how it is, is used. And that word left, and I gave you the, uh, the, the Strong's number for eSword users, and I encourage you, if you use eSword, you'll love it because you can go and put G863 into the search engine and the new King James Plus text, and you can see every place this word is used. You can see for yourself how it is used, and you don't even have to know any Greek. Now, most of us, most folks, just haven't got the time or the interest in learning the Greek language, and, and, uh, I, and I don't blame them because it's, it takes... It takes about five or six years of intense usage of it to get a feel for it. And then you start to learn after five or six years. And most folks are not going to spend five years trying to learn this when you have the time to do it. So you can use this eSword, and it's a free Bible software we've mentioned many times, and we encourage you. But if you go through that, you'll see that this, that this word literally means to send away. And it's something that indicates intent. It's not an accidental activity. And the best place is to see it. If you hold your finger here and go back to Matthew chapter 4, you'll see something. And, and this, there's no way you could confuse this. There's no way that we could mistake this. What happens here is not, a, is not just coincidental. It was a deliberate choice. And so, beginning, we'll go back to uh, verse 17 of Matthew chapter 4. It says, From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of the, he- for the, the, kingdom of the heavens, literally, is at hand. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew's brother, casting that into the sea. And he said unto them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they straightway or immediately left their nets and followed him. There's your word. They left their nets. And then, verse 21, and going... Going from thence, he saw two other brethren, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in a ship with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. Now, was that accidental? No, it was, it was, it was pretty obvious. They heard something, and this, yeah, this is more important. We're leaving what we're doing for something that's more important. And so, uh, I, I gave you some other uses. It, it is also, by the way, the word is translated forgive a number of times, and you can look at those references on your own, but there's a string of them in Matthew where this word is translated as to forgive. And now, Thayer's lexicon, for those of you who are not real familiar with lexicons, this is probably the best 
Greek lexicon for most of us. Most of us guys that have gone to seminary will tend to lean on this or Freiburg's. This is one of this is probably the best. It's an old lexicon, but it's still probably one of the best. He, he says this word means to send away, to bid to go away, or depart. Now I, I've defined it a little bit differently. And point number four, Don, or you see Don's definition is to release or depart from something that is no longer a problem or is no longer of any value for oneself. And you look back at, at the disciples when, when Jesus called those four, those four disciples, two, from two, two at a time, they left their nets. They departed for something. The nets were not as, didn't have the same value to them as following Christ did. They weren't as valuable, so they left something of lesser value for something of greater value. Now, if that's the, the case, and I believe that is, what, going back to Revelation, what does that tell you about this pastor? It's literally the idea he sent away his first love. He didn't, he didn't leave it. He sent it away. It wasn't coincidental. He deliberately sent it away. Revelation 2.4, I would translate it. It says, nevertheless, I have against you this, that you have sent away your first love. It wasn't a coincidence. He did it. He sent it away. And evidently, it looks to me, he sent it away because he didn't see a need for it. Maybe it wasn't as valuable to him. I don't know why, but he sent it away. And so it tells you. So this is not a small problem because when we get right down to it, this strikes at the very heart of the church. The foundational principle the church is built on is going to be love. And so this first love is going to take us straight back to John 13, 34, and 35. Now, if you need to, to look at it, let me read it for you. You don't have to necessarily turn there, but if you want to, it's John 13, 34, and 35. This is the new commandment to the church. A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all know that you are my disciples, if you have loved one to another. Now, who is this for? A new commandment I give unto you. Who is this? Well, it's for the disciples. And these are the ones that are going to go into the church after the Christ's resurrection, ascension, on the day of Pentecost. These are going to be the men that start the church. And so this is the new commandment for the church. This is not the same as love your neighbor as yourself in the Old Testament. You notice the difference here. You're not just that you love one another, but you love as I have loved you. Now, how did Christ love his own? He gave his life for them. It was unselfish. Jesus gave for his disciples, and what did he get in return from them? At the Last Supper, if you look at Luke 22, they were bickering about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of the heaven. They weren't concerned about the fact he was going to be betrayed. If you read Luke 22, it's an eye-opener. Is that Here Jesus has said he's going to be betrayed by one of them, and they begin to discuss that, but then they get off on the subject of who would be the greatest among them in the kingdom of the heavens. Who would be the greatest guy? Are you kidding? Did Jesus get anything back from his disciples after all the things he gave to them in love and did for them in love and would do in the cross? No, it's an unselfish love. It doesn't look for repayment. Now, that's the kind of love we're supposed to have. And that's the kind of love, when you come back to Revelation 2, that this pastor sent away. He sent that away. Now, please notice some things we said here. And this is for the benefit. You can help some other folks. If, if you may have some friends that when you talk to, that subjects like this will come up. And I'm big on believing that you have, we should always have our ear open to help other believers because 
every time you run across another believer, you're running across the potential to share something that you've learned. And you can be helpful to them. And you don't have to be a teacher or a pastor teacher to do this. You can do this as, as a regular believer. So it's, we, can, we can emphasize one thing here. This is the only commandment Jesus gave to the church. Now, if you go through the upper room, John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, you will not find one single reference to any of the Ten Commandments. Now, surely, if the Ten Commandments were in any way binding upon the church or important to the church, would Jesus not have given them to his disciples as he's getting ready to leave them? He's giving them the foundational principles and explaining things about his coming work and what's going to happen. If the Ten Commandments were going to be part of the church, don't you think that they would be mentioned, at least mentioned somewhere? But they're not. They're not. And beside that, you'll notice point number B down here. I have, and this is the bottom of page six. This is the only commandment Jesus gave to the church. Point number B, none of the epistles to the church have any mention of the Ten Commandments as binding for the Christian. Now, you find a few mentions of the Ten Commandments here and there, but they're not mentioned as a binding thing. They're mentioned as something that was true in the past. For example, when Paul said that love was the fulfilling of the law, He's not saying you're under the law. He's just saying that love would fulfill the law. But it doesn't mean people were under it. In Romans 14, he mentions that love is the fulfilling of the law. So, I put point C then. Therefore, no, no Bible teacher has any right to, to apply Israel's Ten Commandments to the church. Please remember Israel's Ten Commandments. Because if you go back to Exodus 20 and Exodus 19, you'll find out why Israel got the law, they would not believe God would give them the land. God said, I brought you out to give you this land. And when they got to Kadesh Barnea, the people said, we can't, after the spies came back, 40 days into the land, and they made a report, the people said, we can't do it, we can't do it. They're, Nepha, they're a Rephaim, they're these big tall guys, they're like, we're like grasshoppers in their sight. And they weren't exaggerating because the, the artifact or the historical evidence is that there were individuals that were 10, 8, 10, 12 feet tall. Now, if you're a five-foot man and you see a 12-foot warrior, Goliath of Gath was about 9'6". And in David's time, the average man was about five foot. Here goes David, a young guy out against a guy that is nine foot six, who has a coat of mail that comes down to here that weighs 135 pounds. Now, I don't know about... If I had to go into battle wearing 135 pounds of armor, I think I probably would be sitting on the bench trying to get up off the ground. <laughs> they wouldn't even be able to get me out to the field. I couldn't even get up. I mean, that's... So you can understand that these people just, they didn't want to go in. And so as a result of their unbelief, they had just said that we'll do anything God says back in Exodus 19. And then when they were pushed, push came to shove, they said, no, we don't believe God will do it. So they got the law. And, and so if we keep it in context and look at the law as it was designated in the Old Testament, we've talked about this on other occasions, and we don't need to go there, but you can go back and look at Exodus 19. The people, the people failed. They wouldn't believe God, so they got the law. And so, therefore, I don't see how any Bible teacher today has any right to apply any of the Ten Commandments to the church. Now, I know the book of James does some things, but we'll talk, we've talked about that before. That's progressive revelation. James didn't understand some things. When you get to the steward of our dispensation, Paul, you will not find him putting the law on anybody. In fact, the book of Romans does quite the opposite. If you have any doubt about it, you can write in your margin, Romans 10.4. You can just make a note to yourself on your notes, right? Romans 10.4 there. Because that is a nice little simple summary. And I love simple summaries of things. I'm a simple man, I guess. I didn't say simple-minded now. So don't, don't pick on me for that. <laughs> but I, I, I'm a simple man. And I like nice simple things. In Romans 10, verse 4, 
It says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. Does that sound like the laws for today? Christ is the end of the law. He was saying that at a time when people wanted to use it. And he's saying, no, it's over. He's the end of the law. Why would anybody have the right to do what Paul said you can't do? So, what is this thing then called the first love? Well, when you go back to Revelation where it says, first, I've given you again the word, it, it's, uh, it, it's G4413 if you use ESORT, and it's the word, and I, and I even put the word there for the, those who want to see it, it's protos, and proto, we get the word proto from it. Now, in English, I'm more familiar with the word as a prototype. Everybody knows what a prototype is, don't they? Whenever they make a, for example, when Detroit comes out with a new car, I remember this back in the day when, I, when cars used to be made in this country and they used to be worth buying before, before they got to the point where they were not made in this country and they weren't worth buying. But they would, all, they would build a new car, they would change the car, uh, they would come out, well, for example, when the Ford Falcon first came out, they made a prototype of it, and the, and the Ford Mustang, they made a prototype of it, a first one to see how it worked, to see what the problems would be to work out all the problems. But it was the foundational thing that others would be built on. It was the first of a type. It would be something that would be foundational that others could be built off of. And so this word, you'll notice in the bottom of page six, there's, there's three different meanings for it. And I gave it to you just so you know because uh, some people have a problem with, with how I'm going to use the word and they would use it differently. And I want you to see why they would do it, but I don't necessarily agree with them. On the bottom of the page, the first is sometimes just use it in, in, a, in a sequence, the first one in, in order. A sequential matter, and we don't. We won't. For the sake of time, we won't go there. But you can find it, Mark ten thirty one. You've all heard that saying out of scripture. But many that are first shall be last, and last shall be first. It's talking about sequence: the first in line, or the first in time, that they be last. And then, if you go over to the top of page uh, seven, it is also used as in rank or as importance. It's first in rank or first in another thing. It's more important than other things. And you find that, for example, you'll see in uh, Mark 10.44, and you see the, the, the phrase is here, and whosoever of you shall be the chiefest shall be servant of all. Now, you can find, those, you can find other verses if you go through Esort and use that uh, G44.13. You'll find there's other places you can see how it's used. But this one here you see, whosoever will be the chiefest of you, who will be the most important, the most prominent. So that's, that's another word, meaning of the word first. And finally, this is the one I think that has really hits the mark of what the first love was all about. It can be used as the idea of a primary principle or idea upon which other principles can be built. In other words, a founding principle. A founding principle. And that's what John 13, 34, and 35 is about. The loving one another is the founding principle. It's a foundation upon which everything else in the Christian life is built. Now, you can see that uh, for example, and let's go back to Mark chapter 12 for just a moment. Uh, this is one of those interesting spots where I wonder if the person to whom Christ was talking and asked him the question ever decided to be, ever really became a believer or not because it said he was close to it. Beginning at Mark chapter uh, 12, verse 28, the... Uh, Scribes and the Pharisees, they were not always very friendly to Christ. In fact, all they were doing was trying to entrap him. It said, verse 28 of Mark 12, 
And one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, and perceiving that he answered them well, he said, Which is the first commandment of all? Now, if he's asking for first in sequence, what would that be? You shall have no other gods before me. Well, why would you ask a question like that? I mean, that's kind of like uh, any, any Jew would know that. Any, any Jew that was of age would know the, the first of the Ten Commandments. That would be a silly question to ask, wouldn't it? Which, which is the first commandment? If he means number one in sequence, then that's kind of silly. And that's not the way Jesus answered it. Everybody would know what it was, but Christ's answer is the underlying principle of the first four commandments. If a Jew loved God, he would not violate, he wouldn't break any of the first four commandments. And look what his answer is. Jesus said, the first of all commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, all thy strength, with all thy mind. This is the first commandment. And the second is like unto this, you love your neighbors yourself. Now, where do you find, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord? I don't think I put it in the notes, for which I apologize. That is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. It is not one of the Ten Commandments. In fact, it was something that Moses repeated only to the second generation, 40 years after all the first generation died off. Now he's coming back, and what he's going to do is he's going to summarize the law. Now the law is, the Ten Commandments are ten negatives. They're don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But now we pointed out in Bibliology, one thing is different from the Old Testament to the New. The Old Testament says don't do something, but it doesn't tell you how not to do it. It doesn't tell you how to do what's right. It just says don't do it. But the New Testament, we're told not to do certain things, but we're also told how. Just remember, walk by, walk by means of the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Paul didn't say don't walk by means of the, don't fulfill the lust of the flesh, and that's it. He said walk by means of the Spirit, and you won't do this. He told you how not to do it. But you don't see that back here. But anyway, you can take the Ten Commandments and you can summarize all ten of them by two positive statements. This is, this is fascinating, but that's what Jesus does here. He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment. This is the foundational principle upon which others can be built. Because if a person was to do this as a Jew, they would not be taking the name of the Lord God in vain. They would not be putting other gods before him. They would not be breaking the Sabbath because the God would, didn't want it. They would not be, uh, let's see, graving images, any of the first four commandments. They wouldn't do any of those. But it can be stated in a positive way. You can state it four negatives or one positive. So this is a unique kind of a summary. And then when you get to the last six of the, of the commandments, those are how you treat other people. Coveting what they have, taking from them, lying to them, cheating on them, bearing false witness against them. Those are things you do wrong to other people. Well, how do you summarize that in a positive way? Verse 31, Mark 12. This, the second, is like unto this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no, uh, there is no other commandment greater than these. In other words, those were first. Those were the first. Those were the foundational principles upon which the whole Ten Commandments and all the legal system could be built on that foundation. Now, Coming back to Revelation, when we see that the pastor sent away his first love, what did he send away? He sent away the new commandment to the church. He sent away the foundational principle for the church. Is that a big thing? Now you know why I say that, that, that I have somewhat against thee is not a very good translation. He didn't have somewhat against him. He had something against him. And it was that he had sent away the foundational principle of the church. In spite of everything he did right, 
he made one catastrophic blunder that caused all kinds of problems. Now, we'll have to come back, and I want to pick up at page 7 next time and, and look at this in, in, in some, some more degree of detail. But, but let's just say for the, for the moment that by missing out on the foundational principle of the church, everything else was going to be in error. If we don't start off with loving one another as Christians, and that's foundational, that's the only commandment Christ gave to the church. If we don't keep that, is it likely that we as a people are going to be doing what God wants the way God wants it done? I don't see how that's possible. I don't see how that's possible. If, if, you, if you look at your computer handbook when you buy a new computer and it says the first thing you do is you plug it in and the battery's not charged and you don't plug it in, do you think that computer's going to work if you don't plug it in? If you don't follow the first step, the foundational principles, you plug the thing in, <laughs> assuming the battery's not charged, if it's a, lab, if it's a laptop. No, you have, to, you have to, the foundational things, you have to do those things. So if we don't start off on the right foot, if we don't love one another, then nothing else is going to work in the church. It's all going to be mechanical, and it's all going to look like, well, we'll, that's why people would want Nicolaitanism. Can you see why they would want it now? If you send away the first love, if you're not loving one another, you don't have that relationship with God where you see the need to love your your brother and sister in Christ the way he would love them, then you're not going to do much right. You're not going to want to make all those decisions. You'd rather let somebody else do it and just sit back and play church. That's why there's a lot of places today that they're playing church. No, they're not doing, they're not serving the Lord. They're playing church. I hope, I hope we never come to the point where we're doing that because this matter of first love, this is quite an indictment. Everything this man did right, only to blow the foundational principle. It'd be better off if he'd done this right and, and messed up some of the other things, don't you think? It would have been better to goof up on some of the other things, but not this. So I hope, I hope in your thinking you correct that. It's not, I have somewhat against thee. I have this against you, that you sent away your first love. That's what it says. He actually did that. Why would a man do that? You know, I really don't know. There could be any number of reasons. But I trust that we never come to a point where we're willing to do that or willing to tolerate a pastor that would do that. We remember the foundational principle is love one another. And that's why the Apostle John, they always questioned him in his time History tells us, why are you always saying love one another? And his answer was, because you need to love one another. And they weren't really doing it. It's easy to talk about that. It's easy to hear people say it. It's another thing to see them do it. Let's close in prayer, shall we? And we'll come back next week, or next month, when I'm up again on page 7 and point number 3, about the third option. Father, once again, we're thankful that your word is so clear. We're thankful that we don't have to invent things that are recorded. We don't have to make them up. We don't have to share our opinion. Our opinions are just that, Father, and our opinions are like noses. We all have one, and they can all be different. And, Father, only your word is the authority, and only what it says when literally interpreted is binding on us. And our opinions, Father, will will be only opinions. May we never be guilty, Father, of taking things out of context or of reading our own thoughts into it and ignoring what the text actually says. But may we always take this book literally, and then we know there are problems that we won't have, and our walk before you will be as it should. Thank you for this time. Bless now and the time it follows. We would ask in our Savior's name. Amen.